This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Today, I'm joined by Tyler Cowan, who is a professor of economics at George Mason University, the faculty director of the Mercatus Center, co-founder of the popular Marginal Revolution blog with Alex Sabarak, a Bloomberg opinion columnist, author of several books, including an economics textbook. He's co-founder of Marginal Revolution University, co-founder of Emergent Ventures, a fellowship and grant program at the Mercatus Center funded by the Teal Foundation that seeks to fund zero to one ideas. Welcome. Hello. Happy to be here. Thank you, John. So Tyler, I want to first get into how you first got interested in economics. You grew up in New Jersey. You did your undergrad at George Mason University. You got your PhD in economics from Harvard under the great Thomas Schelling. And then you came back to George Mason to join the economics faculty. How did all this interest in economics start? When I was 13 years old, I decided that I wanted to start to learn both philosophy and economics. So I started taking trips to the Rivervale Public Library in northern New Jersey, and I took out the different books that I could. At the same time, my father had been a subscriber to something called The Freeman, which comes from Foundation for Economic Education. And that was about economics. I mean, even as a 13-year-old, I found that too boring. I wouldn't say I was attracted by The Freeman. It seemed too simple to me. But it nonetheless was a thing that showed me there was a world out there where people discussed economics. So I started reading a lot of books, uh, also again in philosophy at the same time. In philosophy, Plato made the strongest impression on me. In economics, uh, Milton Friedman, Capitalism and Freedom, and also the Ayn Rand book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. Uh, Her fiction, I was never that much into, and I don't really think she's very correct on matters of abstract philosophy, but her vision of capitalism as a system where people produce things and those people should have high status. Uh, That attracted me immensely. Fascinating. It's it's interesting because I I think there's like very few um, libertarians these days that sort of like count Milton Friedman as uh, a big influence. I feel like it's almost always Hayek or or, or Mises. Uh, That's fascinating just in terms of those. I read Hayek when I was 14, Individualism and Economic Order. And that was a huge influence. But I did read Milton Friedman first. But you were, you were a bigger Friedman fan. Well, I don't know about bigger. Uh, Hayek, to me, did seem like the deeper thinker, but Friedman was more practical. And ha- I had the sense always with Hayek, there's some amount of BS in there, which maybe it's BS you might agree with, but it's a little too Germanic and metaphysical at times. And Friedman never made that mistake. And I just kept on reading. So I read Adam Smith, probably I was 14, uh, read a lot of classical, early neoclassical economics, So my own learning of economics, in a funny way, it sort of follows the path of history of thought a fair amount. And what most people learn in graduate school came to me really quite late. So I rather intuitively can think like an earlier economist in a way that's extremely unusual today. And so so you had an early interest in free market economists, and and that led you to George Mason as an undergrad. Like, At what point did you know that you wanted to do an economics PhD? Oh, I think by 14, I was convinced I was going to be an economist. Philosophy seemed too impractical and that there was not enough progress, maybe no real answers. So I guess by 14, and uh, the first textbook I read was Paul Hain, The Economic Way of Thinking. Then I read Elshian and Allen, University Economics. Somehow I got a copy of that, maybe from the same library. And that just put me on a pretty consistent track. And again, this is the 1970s. So in the 1970s, it's very easy to grow up and think, well, all the free market ideas are true. You know, the issues that were the issues then, there were very clear, simple cases for free market ideas, like inflation was too high, marginal tax rates were too high, labor unions could screw up Great Britain, go on down the list. Someone grows up today, well, there's climate change, whatever you think of that, it's like very complicated, right? You don't just hear climate change and think, oh, I've got to be a free market economist. But the issues of the 70s were tailor-made for that kind of thinking. Communism was around and rampant and quite terrible. And you thought, well, you know, uh, we want a future world where there's no more communism, of course, no more central economic planning. Well, that's fascinating. Well, and, and I mean, amazing that, I mean, it seems like, you know, trivial, I'm sure to yourself at the time, but I guess like, I think back to the 70s, I, I mean, yeah, there were 
even those in you know, Richard Nixon's administration uh, who were advocating for price controls. And, and I guess maybe it was obvious in certain corners, but I, I wonder even then, like I feel like the, the, it wasn't maybe until the Reagan revolution um, that sort of free market ideas became part of sort of the mainstream, or I, I could be totally wrong here. I wasn't born until 1989, like literally the day after the Berlin Wall fell. But I think the undercurrent before the Reagan revolution was extraordinarily strong. And it attracted a lot of talent. And when Reagan was elected, it all seemed to me like old news. In fact, I thought Reagan would fail. There was a good chance it would be a bad thing that Reagan was elected. I was quite skeptical of Reaganism. So it wasn't this new thing like, oh, here's Reagan. I'm all excited about this guy's ideas. I was a bit rolling my eyes and uh, let's just hope this doesn't go too badly. I feel like, you know, it's basically what kind of happened to Liz Truss in a sense. You know, it's... Um... It's amazing how, uh, yeah, it's, it's so strange to me how uh, no one basically even gave her a shot. And there was this pension sort of crisis that um, you know, arguably was or wasn't her fault. And, and um, it's, it's amazing how uh, short-lived the, the trust revolution was in, in comparison to that. She had, what, a month? Reagan had eight years. Right. And the thing about Reagan, I did not foresee at all. I mean, you can debate how much credit he should or should not get. But communism did fall. And ex post, that ratified the whole era. And that was a shock to me. If communism hadn't fell, I think I would have looked back on the Reagan years as, well, they did two or three good things, but this actually didn't really deliver. And in some sense, domestically, that probably is the correct perspective. But of course, communism falling, reforms in China just changed everything. And Reagan is seen as the US president who is the embodiment of all that. Right, absolutely. And you know, perhaps even less so uh, the, the Reagan free market domestic policy, but more so the you know, Reagan strong foreign policy and uh, Star Wars and, and all that, that I, I think, you know, sort of spooked the, the USSR and, um, and and sort of caused, partially caused its uh, its eventual downfall. I mean, the, obviously, the USSR had its own internal problems as well. But uh, yeah, fa- fascinating part of history to discuss. Uh, so you, you got into Harvard, you're a PhD student economics at Harvard. What was the department at Harvard like that when you were a student there? Well, this is, I believe, 1984 we're talking about, just to, to norm things. Uh, Larry Summers had just started teaching. Uh, Martin Feldstein was an important person in the department. People like Barrow and Schleifer hadn't arrived yet. A whole bunch of macro and theory people had just left. Olivier Blanchard had just left. So people with a super short-run focus thought Harvard was in decline. That turned out uh, really not to be true. Uh, half the classes I had, I learned nothing. The other half, like with Summers, with Joe Colt, were just fantastically good. I was in an especially talented class of grad students. So Abhijit Banerjee, who later won a Nobel Prize, he was in my class. Alan Kruger, who would have won a Nobel Prize had he lived, he was in my class. So I think possibly we had the most talented Harvard class in recent memory or maybe ever. Uh, so that was great. But you know, I was an outsider, mostly. Uh, the faculty I found were quite tolerant. I don't have any complaints there. The other grad students, not necessarily. A lot of them were very left-wing, kind of whiny, wanting a bit, you know, to cancel people who were not like they were, calling them fascists and so on. They thought Reagan was this terrible thing that meant the end of the world. So I had, you know, mixed experience at Harvard, uh, but I have no complaints about the faculty at all. How did you find Thomas Schelling? I mean, he was sort of, I think, in the Kennedy School at, at that time? or Yes, or... but he had still kept his appointment in economics. So the, the three people I worked with were Joseph Colt, who had been in economics but moved to the Kennedy School, Richard Zeckhauser, I think he had then still a joint appointment, and Schelling had a joint appointment. And they just seemed closest to me. Uh, they were all great. You know, Schelling, I ended up spending the most time with and got to know the best. And I'd read Schelling, you know, quite a few years earlier. And I just thought when I was there, I should go seek him out. What were your fields? Well, my formal fields were public finance and uh, industrial organization. Fantastic. And my examiners were Joseph Colt and Martin Feldstein. And then the third whom they chose was Richard Cooper, who did international. We had oral exams back then. And those three people quizzed me. Wow, that's, that's fantastic! I mean, what what a, a legendary group of uh, Harvard professors to learn under. Um, most of whom, uh, save uh, maybe Zekauer, have uh, all passed. Um, so you you then uh, joined the faculty of George Mason, 
Well, UC Irvine was my first okay, job. Okay, UC Irvine first. And Schelling helped me get that job. He was really instrumental in that. Uh, he did me some very significant favors, and uh, favors is not the right word, but he helped me in some very significant ways throughout my career. And uh, that was really a big deal uh, to go to Irvine. And I had wonderful colleagues there. Most of all, I'm a high glazer. But David Lillian, Linda Cohen, I just learned so much in my few years at Irvine. That was a great time. And I was like already too much in the George Mason bubble. So to get out into the so-called real world uh, was very important. Oh, f fantastic. Um, so you wrote a bunch of papers on monetary economics with former Fed board member and Chicago Booth professor, uh, Randy Krosner. You've written several papers on uh, public choice and cultural economics. But now from what you've written, you sort of describe yourself as more of a consumer research than a producer, but you're, you're very prolific in all your books, blogs, podcasts. Do you think that, I'm, I'm curious, do you think that economic research is declining in terms of its influence? Like if, if a bunch of, you know, Bloomberg journalists, for example, have the power to you know, effectively launch you know, sort of like a crazy macroeconomic theory like modern monetary theory and its advocates into the sort of the general public discourse or, or propel an idea like greedflation, the idea that it's corporate greed that, that's driving inflation, not government spending or, or, or supply shocks, and, and hence we need like price controls to stop it. If, if journalists are that powerful and can propel ideas into the mainstream or into the public discourse, it's like totally contrary to mainstream economics research. What does that say about the power of persuasion from mainstream academics? Has mainstream academia become too narrow in the questions that it's trying to answer with sort of the tidal wave of applied micro and, and empirical economics? Well, there's a lot of different questions in there. I would respond to a few points. I think a certain kind of economics peaked in status in the 1990s when it seemed all neoliberalism was on the permanent rise. The world was simply globalizing. You know, reforms would work if you stuck to them enough. And those claims might still be true. That's, you know, one can debate that. But for a while after the 90s, they seemed less true than they seemed in the 90s. And everyone got confused. And then you have the financial crisis. I think today economic research is incredibly high quality in the sense that a very specific result you should be more inclined to believe today than ever before. You look at even famous papers from the 1980s. I mean, so often they're just crap. You look at it and you're like, people believe that? Like maybe it was the best estimate. I don't want to name names, but like very well-known people who were doing the best they could at the time, right? Like it's not their fault. It's not that they were bad, just that knowledge is cumulative. And now you read these papers, they're 97 pages long. The referee reports are 15 pages long. The responses to those create three new appendices and seven different extra robustness checks. Uh, but that's also overkill. And there's a, a definite loss of relevance in economics much less than before. It has ceased to be a carrier of new ideas, is the way uh, that I like to put it. So in, in some regards, clearly higher quality, uh, but less a carrier of good new ideas. But, so uh, nothing is new under the sun. We, we've, I guess, you know, we, we've had like 100, or at least 100 years of, of theory or so before empirical economics came along, I, I guess. We're getting more precision in terms of these answers, but but not many big new sweeping world changing macro or or micro theories. Yeah, you know, maybe with the exception of sort of this idea of networks and like Matt Jackson's work or or, or something like that. Like, I mean, could you even name like a, a theory like um, Akerlof and, and adverse selection that that's had as much impact in in terms of. Uh, you know, theoretical contribution over the past like 20, 30 years. Like I, I couldn't, yeah, I, 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 I have issues finding a, a, an example. Like I went to Harvard when theory was at its peak or a little bit past it. People still thought, well, we might figure out game theory and what, like, what are the proper solution refinements for these games. But now you have empirics and even these pieces, while on average, I think they're very good. When they're bad, there's no way you can tell. They look so careful. You would have to redo all the research. And if there's mistakes in coding in there, which I'm not saying is the main case, but surely it's going to be true reasonably often, you just never know. Like 1983, you could pick up someone's paper, read it, just kind of see how smart they were or what techniques they knew. And it was at a much lower level, but you could judge it almost immediately. Now you just have no idea where the bodies are buried. And that's another issue, again, even though average quality is higher. So I would say like Jeremy Stein heard behavior 
was the last significant new idea in theory. And that, I think, is 1990. That's a long time ago now. Absolutely. But it's also amazing, too, how a lot of these ideas are still somewhat uh, timeless in the sense that um, you think about Thomas Schelling and, you know, these the sort of stable equilibria and, and thinking about, like, nuclear deterrence and game theory. We'll, we'll get into that much later. Um, but uh, it is interesting to sort of trade off. Now we seem to be getting after smaller questions um, that have more precise answers, you know, deworming, uh, seems to make people better off in in, in developing countries. Uh, a narrow question, but one that we can sort of answer um, more convincingly and, uh, and and with the ability to replicate them in like randomized control trials. But I'm curious, like speaking sort of this topic of like uh, growth, which is still sort of I think one of the biggest sort of mystery questions of uh, of economics. You know what causes growth? I recall you know in the past you, know, you described yourself as a cultural economist. You like ranking cultures, places, and people. You do a lot of travel. You have all this interest in exotic food. Do you subscribe to the idea that culture shapes institutions, which then shapes economic growth? Or how do you go about studying cultures, and why do you think they matter? When it comes to economic growth, I think it's all mutually determined. But like many people I know, I would say over the decades, I have somewhat downgraded the importance I place on policy as mattering and definitely upgraded the importance I place on culture. Just a simple example that popped up on Twitter, I think yesterday, you look at Malaysia, which is a way above average middle income country. And I think ethnic Chinese in Malaysia, although they face some extra legal penalties, they have per capita incomes, I think more than two X higher than native Malays in Malaysia, living under the same laws, the same policies with some disadvantages. So that has to be something like culture driving a more than 2x difference. I'm not saying every country is just like Malaysia, but the more you go to different places, you do see that like highly general theories, they don't quite work. You have places like New Zealand in the late 80s, early 1990s, they more or less did what economists told them they should do. In retrospect, I still think that was good advice. I'm glad they did it. I, I lived there at the time. I was involved. But in terms of per capita income, New Zealand hasn't caught up. They're at least 30% behind, depending you know, what year you look at and how you convert exchange rates and so on. And they're not going to catch up. And they've repudiated a lot of those earlier policies. So I now think there's some culture in New Zealand, which is a particular way. It has its strengths and weaknesses. And my starting point for thinking about New Zealand is that culture, not the reforms they did. That's fascinating. I mean, it's it's also, I mean, super interesting to think about the interactions between culture and policy, too, in the sense that, uh, you know, that there are some places that you know, just may not be able to have rule of law for certain cultural reasons. Um, That's right. You know. And in some places, rule of law is overrated. China has had an incredible growth record, certainly no rule of law. They have a system of corruption. I wouldn't call it efficient, but you basically get bribes by getting things built. And they've done well enough with that. In the long run, it's super dangerous. They need to undo it. Uh, they probably can't. They're locked in in a bad way. But you can say rule of law is essential for growth. I might have said that when I was 14. But I've since then had all these decades of watching China and going there. And they've managed their own way, which I really would not recommend to other countries. But clearly, it's gone pretty well. Yeah, I, mean, I guess also, I mean, too, you know, they're only at, uh, in terms of per capita terms, or maybe at only like an eighth or a seventh of, of what the U.S. is. And so I guess the question is, like, how easy is catch-up growth versus, um, you know, being on the frontier of growth and, and all sorts of fascinating. Yeah. But most countries don't even do much catch-up, right? And mm -hmm. I don't think they're going to do any more catch-up for that matter. And I think they've painted themselves into a terrible corner where for every problem they rely on the state. And all that was baked into their earlier successes. So I get all that. I'm just saying when I was much younger and you told me, well, the Chinese, they're not going to do shock therapy. They're going to keep all these things to state-owned enterprises. And you made me give a forecast. I would not have predicted 5% growth, much less an average of 8 to 10%. So that's a case like clearly I was wrong or I would have been wrong if I'd made a prediction and I've changed my views. But I still see you know, how screwed up China is and the statism is already coming back to haunt them. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, it's also interesting too. I mean, we had for with the exception of maybe China 
for a long time, you know, people didn't really believe in economic convergence. And, you know, there were these papers like you know, Divergence Big Time by Alain Prochette that were written and, you know, why weren't poorer countries growing or catching up? And, and interestingly, if you look at over the past couple of decades, since around the year 2000, it seems like some of these poor countries are finally starting to catch up. Um, obviously well, but but then all these start. other places don't, mm -hmm. you know, you can look at Ireland and Singapore and decide, oh, FDI is so important. And it is for those places. You look at Japan, Korea, and you might think, oh, FDI, it's not really actually that important. And both views in some ways are correct. And you need this bigger picture where you're willing to relax some generalizations and just realize the contingencies of a lot of things. And that, to me, is what makes travel important. Travel is how you learn the contingencies. And you're always forced to re-examine what you thought you knew. Absolutely. Um, so I, I want to uh, pivot into um, the Marginal Evolution blog. You started the Marginal Evolution blog in, in 2003 um, with Alex Tabarrok. Obviously, you were ahead of everyone else in terms of starting a central repository for economics news and information. Um, well ahead of Twitter and what it's kind of used for today. What led you to create the Marginal Evolution blog and what is the original story behind it? Well, the person who got me interested in blogging was Eugene Volokh, who for a brief while had me writing at Volokh Conspiracy, which still exists. It was mainly a legal blog. And uh, working with Eugene on that, I realized blogging was a kind of future. And I thought, well, there should be a pure economics blog that does for economics what Volokh Conspiracy was doing for legal scholarship. So I went to Alex Tabarrok, he and I were talking. Alex came into my office and he said, Tyler, we should write a principles textbook. And I said, Alex, we should write a blog first and then write a principles textbook. And that's what we did. And that was uh, 20 years ago, almost, not to the day, but like one more month, it'll be 20 years, I think. Wow. Uh, and it's just amazing in terms of uh, the influence that it's had, it's certainly uh, one of the blogs I read every day, um, or one of the few blogs left. I guess there aren't so many blogs now uh, around, uh, you know, it's, it's so much uh, is pivoted to Twitter, but I feel like it's it's one of the few news sources that, that I read every day, um, which um, speaks to just how successful it's been. So you recently told uh, the Financial Times that your personal ambition as an economist is to be the individual who's done the most to teach the world economics broadly construed. And I'm curious to sort of get into Marginal Evolution University. Um, you know, what is it and how is it different from other ways of teaching basic economic concepts? And, and how many people has it reached if you have any sort of general um, sense of, of what the statistics are? Uh, Marginal Revolution University is a series of YouTube videos that teach economics. We have a complete micro and macro class up, but we have about 20 classes in total. Uh, our micro and macro classes are generally at a pretty high technical level. For some of them, we have actual movie makers come in and film us like we're making a movie. So uh, we're the number one economics blog as far as I know. We get emails every day, most of all from India, but Middle East all over the world, also America. Uh, we're now in 18% used in 18% of U.S. high schools. Oh, wow. And we aim to be in uh, 25%. Now, those can be varying degrees of use, like we would count just one video, but that's something. So a lot of people learn best by video. And we were, you know, very early putting basic economics lessons on video. Unlike a lot of what I write, you know, it doesn't try to be too complicated. It really tries to make things simple. Like, here's why demand curve slopes downward. Here's the effects of a tax. Here's what elasticity is. Uh, and the world has needed that. So we thought we would do it. And we've now been working on it, I don't know, eight years. I'm not sure. And uh, it's gone great. I don't know what our total number of unique views is. It's like many millions. I mean, you know, that's I incredible. To count. Yeah. I mean, 18 to 25% of high schools, that, that's incredible. Uh, well, we're not at 25%. That's the goal. Oh, that's the goal. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, we're in the teens. I mean, that's, that's being in the teens, I mean, having even just a couple percent is is, uh, is incredible. I mean, so, so I'm, like, is it, I guess it's a free thing you can access. It's just like on YouTube. And no the, ads. You can do it without losing any privacy. Like you can sign up for updates, but you don't have to. You can just click and watch and okay. then you're anonymous to us. So uh, it's very school friendly. Teachers don't feel they're like helping someone make money off the kids. And that's on purpose. And we try to make it as easy to use as possible. 
And it's not like eventually some other product we sell you. So it's there. You know, that's it. That's incredible. I mean, so the teachers, they still come up like with their own tests and stuff like that? Like, uh, We have test banks and we have problem sets and exercises and multiple choice. That's very important part of teaching, not just the videos. Our core videos, when you use them, you can quiz yourself, which people really like. Not all of the videos have that, but micro and macro does. So we've tried to make it as complete as possible. I teach an online principles course every year. Uh, this year, I'll have over 400 students. And there's an online text, but most of the students actually use more video than text. But they have their choice, or they can do both. And they use those same Marginal Revolution University videos. So it's possible to teach the whole principles class online from start to finish, where no one has to talk into a Zoom camera or show up in a classroom. And there's massive excess demand for that class. That's incredible. I mean, how do you think economics education is changing? Like, obviously, you're a big part of that change that I think is underway. I mean, do you think that, like, in the future, you know, classic textbooks like of the sort of Samuelson and, and Mankiw's, you know, principles of economics will, will matter less? And, you know, will fewer people acquire human capital through, you know, traditional universities versus, like, online options like YouTube or Coursera or, I guess, you know, Marginal Revolution University? I mean, again, like, it seems like, you know, ha actually having coursework and tests and some sort of learning and enforcement mechanism is sort of really important for actual retention like i don't think I, I can learn something as well if i'm just listening to youtube videos versus you know watching videos or, or taking some sort of instruction and being forced to remember something and write something down um and, you know like on a test um or in an essay but i mean in the, like how do you see the internet and sort of educational instruction online disrupting how economics has been taught people have different now? learning styles so I think we're going to have a lot of different options forever. But I think the, uh, the modal option in equilibrium will be a mix of YouTube videos, uh, an AI bot that you quiz and quizzes you all the time, and then an instructor who comes by periodically to encourage you and pat you on the head. But most of your learning you do from the video and the bot. But get it, clearly there are people who want something other than that, and they'll be able to get it. Yeah, I, I, so I wonder too whether eighty. I don't think that's eighty percent of the market, but I think it's at least thirty to forty percent, and it will be done more than any other single option. Now, do you, I mean, do you think somebody could use ChatGPT to to cheat on a marginal evolution exam? Or I mean, there, I guess there's got to be some enforcement mechanisms to making sure people are actually learning rather than just you know copying or or, or you know outright cheating. And I always wondered, like maybe actually people actually do written tests as opposed to anything using a computer. I mean, at this point. If you have access to ChatGPT, I'm sure that, which I'm sure, you know, obviously students do, um, there, there's almost no way to prevent um, or, or even maybe even detect G. I know there's like detect GPT and things like that, but I feel like as long as chatbots stay one step ahead, they, they could probably figure out how to outsmart the detection algorithms. People also use it to cheat in class, but I think basically as of now, we will need to force all exams to be uh, in the classroom and ban all smartphones. This is not what we are doing. I think we should do this for all, all methods of evaluation, including for my classes, but that's not up to me. So I think it will rapidly be a crisis and we'll need to act. But nonprofit institutions of higher ed, maybe you've noticed this, they're not always the quickest to respond to a crisis. Yeah, that, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's fascinating just to think that, you know, going back to, you know, pen and paper, um, uh, you know, interesting how an old school technology is maybe the best solution to uh, uh, to this. I, I'm curious, like, would, would you support, you know, uh, mandatory economics education in schools? And, and do you think that would be sort of like broadly impactful to society? Well, if you mean in high schools, uh, we face this issue with Marginal Revolution University. One reason we're so popular is a lot of state legislatures have mandated such education, but there's no one in the school who can teach it especially smaller schools, rural areas. So they turn to us, which I'm very happy about. Uh, in principle, I like the idea of mandatory economics education, but if you're doing it in states and school districts where there are no teachers, or maybe the teachers add, you know, have negative value, then of course that's a problem. So we're kind of in between right now, and we, don't, we can't quite deliver uh, on the mandatory side of the promise. So uh, we should be a little skeptical.
That's fascinating. Which states do you have? Which states have, have uh, some sort of like mandatory economics component to it? Or? Oh, I don't mean it's really quite a few. Uh, more common in Republican-run states. I think North Carolina is one of them. I think Virginia is one of them. I, I once knew the list, and you know, states get added to that list, but not very much taken off because more laws are passed than ever repealed, as we know. So it's a lot of the country, and again, it can go very well. I think high schools should teach you personal finance, like buy and hold, diversify. Here's compound interest. Here's borrowing money, what it means. And many do a good job. Uh, many don't. Uh, we have a lot of videos on personal finance also, just trying to teach people those basic truths. Like, don't just think you can beat the market. Trading a lot doesn't have to be a good thing. Uh, diversification is a very high value for your own portfolio. It's fascinating how, I think, despite all the attempts to teach these things, uh, which I I think are all uh, good, good and true. Uh, how difficult uh, it, it seems to uh, to actually get those things to stick with the broader public. Speaking of of uh, Virginia, you know, you're and uh, get back to George Mason University, uh, where you currently are a professor. You are described as sort of being in the public choice wing of George Mason University, and I sort of want to get into sort of schools of economic thought here because I do think that it, it's kind of relevant to how we teach economics and. and and it's one of the things that, that people tend to think about um, first, I think, um, certainly those that have only taken maybe one or two classes in economics. On your blog uh, at Marginal Evolution, you often post about like Austrian business cycle theory. Uh, you, know, you, you describe yourself as a state capacity libertarian. Uh, you're one of the leading thought leaders in the sort of state capacity libertarian school of thought, which I think, you know, to paraphrase means something like, you know, the broad sort of belief in incentives, markets, and capitalism are very powerful, but sort of work in conjunction with political realities when the governments correct me if i'm wrong there um and i mean how how would you describe your views in general about the role of government and economic well-being i mean do you think civilization policy makes sense uh from both sort of monetary and fiscal policy sense uh do you think there's you know some role for redistribution and and do you think that you know policy and perhaps institutions depending on on how one defines it sort of matters for growth and, and i know you mentioned earlier that you, you sort of have backed off a little bit from policy and have shifted more toward culture. But I'm curious, like, I feel like these are sort of like bedrock things, you know, like, are you a, a Keynesian versus a Chicago school or Austrian economist? I feel like that's one of the first things that when you talk to people about economics and they've only had that one class, you know, those are the, one of the first things that they, they talk about. I and mean, where, where do you put yourself in, in that nexus, assuming you think it's relevant too? Yeah, there's a lot of, again, different questions in there. Certainly my biggest early influence was the Austrians, and I would not discount that as an enduring influence. But unlike a lot of Austrians at the policy level, I do think we need a social welfare state, if only to keep democratic capitalism stable. It might be overrated how much you know welfare actually helps the poor and other people. But I think it's essential, and there, you don't end up with a freer society if you try to get rid of that. And none of the major reforms in Western countries have succeeded in getting rid of that, which I take seriously. Now, monetary and fiscal policy, I tend to think monetary policy is more powerful, as Milton Friedman did. For fiscal policy, there's a very simple rule that I see very understressed, and that's just spend on projects you know, that have a greater than one benefit to cost ratio. And if you want to use those projects for a cyclical policy, okay, like if you screw that up, you're still spending money on something worthwhile. And somehow that gets lost in the scuffle and everyone's talking about Keynes and digging ditches. I mean, you say that stuff to the public, you're not doing fiscal policy any favors with that talk. Oh, it's going to be great. It's a free lunch. We can waste the money. Aggregate demand goes up. The best way to get aggregate demand up sustainably is to produce things that are valuable and generate enduring real incomes. And that pushes you back to this cost-benefit rule you want projects for the benefits exceed the costs. That to me is so simple. It doesn't make you anti-fiscal policy per se. I just think it's a very, very, very good rule of discipline. So that makes me, I don't know what you want to call it. You could say fiscal conservative. But again, if the project is good, I'm very willing to spend. But I, I guess like there, there's a question of like how many you know, government projects are there out there that have such positive benefits? I mean, like obviously like when we're talking about Fiscal projects now, you think about you know the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, all these you know, EV 
subsidies and things like that. And, you know, it totally just depends on like what your forecasts are in terms of you know, the social cost of carbon and, and things like that. Like I've, I've always sort of seen fiscal policy as sort of like, there's like sort of two different styles or, or, two, or two different types. You know, there's the sort of actual government spending, you know, the big G, which is, you know, tanks, um, you, you know, equipment, things like that. And then there's sort of the fiscal transfer side of things. Um, and obviously like if you go back to 2008, stimulus that was very focused on um those sorts of physical sort of capital and big g projects um and, and those things tend to have sort of smaller fiscal multipliers uh fiscal multipliers in general whereas you look at things like and transfers like seamless checks things like that seem to have much higher seem to have much higher fiscal multipliers but then also sort of i think have a greater tendency to spur inflation and, and they become much more popular in the sort of covid response um I mean, do you think that, um, like, how how would you think about, um, you know, the, for example, transfers um, in, in this? Well, just sort of a framework? few points. I think the data show the transfers from two thousand eight, two thousand nine, they were not very effective. People didn't spend much of the money, assuming you wanted it spent. So that's one reason why we so overreacted when we did basically the four trillion of like combined monetary fiscal policy transfers. It was way too much. But people had this immediate background experience where it way underperformed. So I think one cautionary lesson there is just how much policies can be context dependent and don't assume, you know, you're fighting yesterday's war. Now, the 2008 fiscal stimulus, uh, my sense, and Mercatus commissioned some research on this, is it didn't put that many people back to work. It mainly chased after the laborers who already had jobs and the problem workers were lower skilled than who typically might be useful on a lot of these government projects. So if the employment effects are not that positive, well, you'd better hope they're good projects, right? Gets back to my earlier point. Now, there's so many projects they did, you know, most of which I've never looked at or I'm not even aware of. I would just say, you know, you want to look at them and just try to do the good ones. That was not the emphasis at the time. I'm sure a whole bunch of them were quite good, and I'm pretty sure a whole bunch of them were not quite good. But we're approaching it too much with a macroeconomic lens and not enough microeconomic discipline, I would say. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's interesting, too. You know, you think about the American Re Recovery and Reinvestment Act and how sort of, yeah, I think, unprepared we were for that in the sense that Congress can pass a bill that, had, you know, is at the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars and you don't even necessarily know where to spend it. I, like, I think there have been some good sort of initiatives in recent years of trying to, like, come up with, like, lists of sort of, like, you know, ready to go projects or ideas, you know, particularly sort of in the infrastructure space, here's a list of bridges that actually need to get rebuilt. And 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 now they can be sort of finally done. And and I think in part that did to some degree come into fruition in uh in through the 2020 um aftermath and, and infrastructure bill um that actually got passed recently and, and so forth. But I, I guess I'm just curious like in, in terms of getting back to sort of teaching and, and just the state of economics and as, as a academic discipline, I mean, schools have thought of, you know, traditionally, have, you know, had a lot to do with economic theory, you know, particularly macro. I mean, do you think that schools of economic thought will matter less in the future with the rise of empirics and applied economics? Like traditionally, you know, teaching history of economic thought and schools of thought has been, I think, you know, a big part of how we teach introductory economics. Keynesianism versus Chicago school, monetarism versus, you know, Austrian school or something else. I mean, a lot of people who don't have, you know, much economics education I mentioned before, you know, still seem to know a lot about the history of economic thought, but don't actually know a ton of economics in detail or, or a ton of sort of microeconomics. Do you think, you know, how we should teach schools of thought, um, you know, whether um, how we teach schools of thought, is that outdated? You know, will they matter less in the future? Like, if you go back to, you know, the, you know, 70s and 80s, it was a big deal when somebody said they were a Keynesian or, or a monetarist, and this was certainly you know, Milton Friedman versus others, um, you know, uh, Milton Friedman versus Samuelson. They had you know dueling Newsweek columns. Even more recently, like I remember when it was a big deal um, when Richard Posner at UChicago, sort of traditionally associated as part of the law and economics wing of, of the Chicago School, sort of after 2008, sort of declared he was a Keynesian, and we you know we need to rethink that. At that time, that seemed like a, a really big deal. But now with sort of the applied micro takeover of economics, like schools of thought, apart from sort of these things in the in the media, like you know, modern monetary theory or, or people that pride themselves on, on being Austrian, GMU, I think is a bit of an exception. I, I just don't hear about uh, schools of economic thought as, as much anymore. 
Yeah, we're not supposed to talk about them. It's fallen into ill repute. But I would say if you don't talk about schools of thought, you will end up as a prisoner of at least one of them and not even know it. That people do approach questions with presuppositions. And when they pretend they don't, typically that's when the presuppositions are the strongest. So I would like to see more schools and graduate schools teach history of economic thought. My next book will be on history of economic thought and the great economists. So I'm doing my bit toward this end. Uh, but I don't see us as overturning what is the current trend of all these super long, super careful empirical papers that pretend there aren't so many presuppositions behind it all. Well, I mean, it is fascinating. Cause, like, I, I do think that like some of these applied micro uh, uh, papers can sort of answer or shed a lot of light on on some of these schools of thought questions. Like, in, like I'm, I'm a big Milton Friedman fan, but you know, one thing that you know, he kind of wrote about in Capitalism and Freedom was that uh, you know, this idea that you know fiscal policy just you know, the, the, almost as if the fiscal multiplier was zero, or the, you know these like bounce the wheel sorts of uh, uh, you know approaches he he uh, labeled you know, that they wouldn't have any effect on, on economic activity. But we have a lot of great data now, and we have some tons of natural experiments, and, and like it's pretty clear that like the marginal propensity consumed is, is is something, and fiscal multipliers per project is something, and certainly like you know there's an associated cost with each of these things, and sure maybe if you're doing it in a micro sense, you're not accounting for general equilibrium effects, and that may make the multipliers actually much lower. And there's some evidence of that out there too. But I guess like at some level, I feel like there there's maybe a a new sort of synthesis that's occurred in the supplied micro world where, you know, the, at some level, sort of each, every school was sort of right in, in at some sort of level, but maybe not as much as um, some of its sort of biggest proponents once claimed, you know, maybe monetary policy isn't as impactful, uh, or you certainly uh, money, monetary aggregates don't seem to be as uh, predictive of inflation at at small at a smaller scale or over or, or shorter periods of time. Um, but clearly, you know, matter over longer periods of time and and you know every big inflation is associated with a big increase in the supply of money and and uh and similarly you know same thing with sort of fiscal policy it's like yes you know their fiscal multipliers are greater than zero but it's not like projects are often at all self-financing like i'm curious what your take is on on like are we in a sort of new neoclassical synthesis or i guess what some people name these things um like if the average economist applied economist is part of a school what school would that be i guess even if they didn't know what school they were part of i think a strong agree to just about everything you said i'm a little cautious to label it a new synthesis uh, i think there are macro truths that actually change over time and this makes me nervous so when milton friedman wrote and made those claims about the money supply I thought at the time they were pretty well justified. And you can go back and reread those papers. He was not crazy wrong. But that said, after some date, M2, say, does really seem far less predictive than it had been in Friedman's time. So I think most of all, we need to keep an open mind about like our, our current synthesis, whatever we call it. Well, that's maybe going to change too. It might right. become more Friedmanite. It's possible. I, I don't really have a prediction. But just to keep an open mind, and Keynes, Friedman, Hayek, I mean, they're all great macroeconomists. It's easy to pick out cases where they're clearly wrong and dump on them. But the real skill is seeing just how much talent and insight they had and trying to carry that with you while realizing on a given case, it might not be a case where their ideas really apply either. Absolutely. I mean, it's fascinating how I think you, you wrote a column recently about how maybe monetary aggregates are kind of relevant again. You know, M2 is shot up so is inflation. It's fascinating how sort of over 30 years or so after inflation became totally stable, and it seemed like we couldn't really target monetary aggregates when the Fed was trying to in the late 80s, um, that sort of failed and money demand, I guess, was unpredictable. I guess, yeah, it, it, to your point, it totally depends on uh, the, the maybe the macroeconomic regime and, and maybe in very good um, very stable times, um, it becomes much more difficult to predict things versus when you know, money supply is growing super rapidly, it then becomes relevant all of a sudden. So maybe speaks to just, um, we don't necessarily realize how good we had it over the, you know, that great moderation through, you know, up until COVID sort of period, um, where we had low inflation. Um, just to sort of um, pivot to sort of this topic of growth again and, and innovation, you, know, you are you know very active in actually funding innovators. Can you explain what Emergent Ventures is all about? Um, it's backed by the Teal Foundation. You know, what's your philosophy around finding talent? You've written a book 
titled talent. Um, I'm curious, what spurred you to sort of jump into this game of, of backing people? And, and how did that come together? I think that's something very rare for uh, an economist to, to be getting into. And, and all the more interesting. Yeah, it's a little more than four years old. And, you know, I have longstanding experience in the world of philanthropy. And I often found it uh, frustrating. So just uh, how long it can take to apply, how long the application has to be, uh, how many different committees or layers of approval it has to go through, may be fine for some purposes, but it's become far too bureaucratic. And this is America's private sector, right? It's not the government that makes foundations do this. So I tried to reimagine philanthropy as if I were designing a system from scratch. And the key components of what we do is uh, 2% overhead. So if someone gives us a dollar, we'll spend 98 cents of that dollar. That's remarkably low overhead, as you may know. A university could charge a minimum of 20%, sometimes 50%. So we're doing 2% overhead, one layer of no. So there's one person who can give the green light or red light. For many grants, that's myself, though I now have separate individuals. One does India and the other does Africa, but I do the rest of the world. And then most people get an answer within two weeks. Very often you get an answer within two days and things are very quick. And uh, if you are awarded something, we just send you the money and your reporting requirement, your report cannot exceed one page in length and we don't want it formatted. And that was just my view of one ideal way of doing philanthropy. And I'm not paid to do this. And there's no staff that's being carried. No, like buddies, I've got to keep on payroll. So it's not my incentive to be risk averse, keep the money coming in, do a lot of safe grants, hand out everywhere to please everyone. Uh, My incentive is just to pick what I think is good. And the people who do India and Africa, you know, Shruti and Rashid, they face the same conditions. So for me, it's been a great experiment. Uh, I'm very happy with it. I'm going to do more. You mentioned Teal Foundation. They were our opening grant. And that was incredibly important. It would not have existed without them. But in terms of total funds, uh, they would not be at 2%. So it's not mainly money from them or any single place. I mean, it's incredible. Like at some level, I feel like this is totally turning the existing system of of, of grant making on the part of, you know, governments, uh, universities, you know, uh, think the National Institutes of Health or I uh, think uh, National Science Foundation. I feel like it's, it's totally turning that on its head because I, I feel like that's become such a bureaucratic process. So, so like, how do you have the time to even, I mean, you're managing a blog, uh, which is, you know, posting several times a day. Uh, you've got podcasts, you're writing books. I mean, like, how do you have the time to to review, like, I, I, ideas? Uh, and, and I mean, you're just, like you just answer them as soon as they come in. Is that is that sort of your your process of how, a lot of the no's are immediate? But look, you've got to work hard, right? You can't waste time. But I also view the different activities as supporting each other, feeding into each other. So when I read all these applications, typically from younger people for emerging ventures, I feel I just really have my finger on the pulse of where innovation is happening or maybe will be happening, and that makes me much better at all the other things I do. So it is a lot of time, but in this regard, they're not totally separate activities. You know, I have my own views where I'm bullish, bearish, and it's not that I'm technical experts in these fields. I just look at the levels of talent being attracted. And if a lot of smart young people are doing something, I become way more bullish on it. I think it's not a bad metric. That, that's fascinating. And, and I guess, like, do you find that some of the best ideas come from within the U.S. or, or, or outside the U.S.? Well, I know you're from Toronto or you're there now. I've been amazed of the quality of applications from Ontario, and it's typically children of immigrants living right outside of Toronto, but not in Toronto. They're one of the strongest groups I end up seeing. And I didn't really grasp that before doing Emergent Ventures. So, of course, I'm way more bullish on Ontario than I used to be. And I know a lot of them end up in the U.S., but still, Ontario is this incredible talent pool. I don't even know if Canadians fully appreciate it. Well, it's, it's fascinating. And, and I know um, there's a, a new initiative um, that's been brought forth by uh, the Trudeau government uh, tech transfer program. And the idea is, you know, that those H-1B sort of these issues can sort of move to, to Canada. I mean, it, it's interesting and, and, and maybe just speaks to you know, migration. And, um, you know, you look at sort of different migrant um, groups and, and ethnic innovation you know, Bill Kerr has done a lot of research on this, and uh, I, I know that um, one of his 
interesting findings that you'll find in the USPTO patent data is that um, ethnic Indians often had the highest patenting rates, well above any other ethnic group, uh, as, as well as uh, as well as Asian immigrants. And interestingly, uh, Canada, um, for I think a number of reasons, tends to select on on those particular. Um, immigrant groups in particular, which I think in general just have these very high rates of of, uh, of patenting and, and innovation, and so so maybe that is a, a part of of uh, and just having an overall an immigration system that's more conducive to high skilled immigration um, and just allowing more high skilled immigrants in in general is part of that. Um, that would be my sort of working uh, conjecture. Um, yeah, sure. And so India I, is still greatly underrated, even after all the recent coverage which has given it more deserved attention. Uh, there's so much coming from India. I think India will be for the next like 30 years what Central Europe was for the early to mid 20th century. And the world just hasn't digested that yet. This is why I set up Emergent Ventures India as separate. I was getting so many good India applications and a Shruti Rajakopalan who runs that. I just thought it needed its own person and someone who of course was from India and knows India very well. And that's just gone great. So I'm super bullish on India also, yes. And Indian migrants, both. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's the whole uh, study of innovation and, and migration uh, is it, it's one of my own uh, personal research interests. Um, but I, I want to sort of um, move back to Thomas Schelling and um, sort of this topic of where the world and, and its political, geopolitical system is going and where its various uh, global political systems are going. Um, you know, nuclear war you know, deterrence seem like topics that are sort of now back in, along with sort of the state of democratic political systems. I think the latter's uh, maybe a little overhyped and, and certainly been around since the mid 2010s um, with the election of sort of various so-called populist candidates. But, you know, get back to your late PhD advisor, Thomas Schelling, um, you know, who thought a lot about nuclear deterrence and civil equilibria. You know, we have this Oppenheimer movie coming out this summer about the Los Alamos National Laboratory and the development of the first nuclear weapons. You know, we've got this terrible and strangely rare land war between uh, a nuclear power, Russia and Ukraine. Um, it seems like very, very rare that we see something like that. How transformed do you think uh, the sort of just nuclear in general has been since the 1940s? I mean, do you think that uh, obviously you're uh, like an advocate for sort of renewed nuclear power um, or uh renewed reliance on nuclear power as an energy source. I mean, do you think that uh, nuclear disaster of some form is like inevitable over the next century or a couple centuries? I and mean, avoiding conflict uh, you know, between nuclear powers seemed to be working so well up until uh, recently, um, this era of the sort of end of history and last man in the 1990s. I, I feel like that was sort of like the peak, you know, kumbaya amongst democratic capitalist nations uh, moment occurred. You know, it's also after the end of the USSR and of communism, when sort of the, yeah, that Fukuyama narrative sort of um, really took hold. Um, and we had, you know, again, this idea that the harmonious global democratic capitalism was sort of the end state of political history. But I mean, recently we've seen all these, you know, aggressive non-democratic countries like you know, China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and even uh, uh, you know, a case to be made that, you know, democracies may wane in India. And all this sort of new battle lines drawn across various allegiances. I'm curious, like, what do you make of the future in terms of its like global political economy and conflict? Well, in any given year, the chance of nuclear weapons being used, I think, is extremely low. And that's good news. But as you know from probability, if the clock ticks and you have enough years, the chance they will be used is actually pretty high. And that's what worries me. It may even be accidental use, but things can spiral out of control. So at some point, the accident will happen or the war will come, and that will be a terrifying time. We'll need to get through it. I think it's implausible to think nuclear weapons never will be used. I've been very deeply concerned with this. I mean, even before I met Schelling, it's partly why I sought out Schelling. And I've never had a period in my life where I thought I didn't need to have this as my number one worry for the world. Well, I mean, I'm curious. So nuclear stuff aside for a moment, I'm curious, like, what do you think about, you just wrote a review on your blog of, of Patrick Deneen's new book, uh, Regime Change, uh, and he's sort of this, you know, post-liberal, you know, we need to rethink liberalism school of thought. Like, what do you think is the state of free market capitalism and, and 
sort of democracy in the world today? I mean, do you think that sort of the end of democracy is is, is like a very overhyped narrative? Uh, do you think that um, we're sort of in a new Washington consensus that uh, free trade and, and, and things like that are kind of of a bygone or past era and, and even free capital flows, you know, the, the IMF isn't really big on anymore. I mean, are, are we kind of in a new regime that has some same power in terms of how sort of international economics should um, should be working? Or do you think that this is just all kind of a flash in the pan and, and we'll get back to, you know, neoliberalism sooner than we know it? Or maybe maybe we're just neoliberals but under a new name, I guess, is maybe a, a, a third option, I guess. I think media overstate a lot of trends. So clearly, cross-border immigration is down more broadly. Uh, but trade across borders really is not down. It's proven remarkably robust, even with COVID, which was a huge negative shock of some kind. Uh, some countries are less democratic. Turkey would be an example, though they do still have elections, which seem to matter. But you can see more countries going backwards than forwards. You could say Peruvian democracy is under threat. A number of Latin countries, maybe the risk of a non-democratic coup has gone up. Uh, so we should be concerned. But I think that as a trend, it is much, much overstated. And the successful countries where people want to live are democratic capitalist countries. And everyone more or less knows that. And I don't think that's going to change. So I would still bet on democratic capitalism and its associated ideologies. I know it's somewhat out of fashion. But there's what people say and what people do. And just look, where do people actually want to migrate when they have the choice? It's obvious which places and systems are still winning. And I think that enduring truth will prove more important. I mean, do you think that uh, this whole sort of new wave of uh, ideas around industrial policy, do you think that that has staying power? Well, I think for green energy, we have to do something. I'm never sure what is best to do. But if we do something that rubs me the wrong way, I, I feel there's some version of that I need to accept. I'm not sure we're doing the right version of that, but like something's going to happen that free trade lovers will not be entirely comfortable with. Uh, I don't know if we'll solve, you know, the carbon emissions problem, but whatever, wherever we end up, you know, I think it will be a one-time thing. And uh, more and more of the economy, which is relatively free, will grow at the expense of the parts which are not relatively free, just like, say, the tech sector has kept on growing. Now AI is likely to grow as a part of our economy. So the long-run prognosis, I think, looks pretty good for neoliberalism. And this exception for green energy, again, I think we need to do something. So for me, it's not the end of the world. But again, if you look at the details of what Biden has done, there are still a lot of good criticisms you can make. It's like jobs created count as a benefit, not as a cost. And we as economists more or less know that's wrong, right? Absolutely. Tyler, we've seen both economic growth and population hit a slowdown, certainly in, in developed countries over the you know, recent decade. I mean, do you think that economic growth um, and population are hitting an upper bound? And you know, why do you think this may or, or may not be the case? I mean, do you think that there's economic reasons or, or, or more cultural reasons underlying this, uh, this phenomenon? I think the main cause behind the demographic slowdown with population is simply the ongoing spread of birth control. And many women realizing that having more than one kid is not always that fun for them. Uh, it's not obvious that that will change anytime soon. The economic growth slowed down. I think artificial intelligence will in due time reverse and that we have a new transformative general purpose technology that will have many applications. And I think we'll see a lot more progress again. And the world will change rapidly and will feel very weird for a while. So we're going to get a mixed bag. You know, Elon Musk is right. We need to worry about shrinking population, but we have a lot of time to solve that problem. I don't think at the moment we have any solution in sight. Well, I, I'm curious, like you, know, you sort of outlined some technological uh, and, and sort of economic reasons. I mean, the, the, there's obviously uh, some people believe that the cost of housing is a big part of why people are having less children. I, I think certainly uh, you know, land use regulations are a huge issue. Um, causing you know housing supply shortages not just in the U.S. but across developed countries, and some have sort of responded that you know we need to be EMBs and, and get affordable housing. Some places like Hungary under the Viktor Orban government are changing tax laws so that you know, people have more than four children you know, don't have to pay tax for the rest of their lives. I'm curious, like you know, you're a cultural economist. I'm curious, like you don't see this as maybe being sort of a 
a broader cultural phenomenon. I've seen some statistics from Pew, for example, uh, that um, you know those that have um, seen a decline in, in religious belief over you know say the recent decades are, are a lo- you know a big chunk of those who are less likely to have children. I mean, often these things it's kind of an all of the above answer, and it's not just sort of one a monocausal type explanation. Um, but I'm curious, like, do you see sort of like any sort of interactions between culture and technology? You know, people are spending, you know, two or three hours a day on their cell phones, on social media. Maybe that's affecting culture in such a way that, um, you know, that they, I don't know, don't feel as much social pressure to have children. Um, when you know, traditionally, you know, if you, all your friends were having children, you know, there'd be social pressure on you to do so. Um, do you see there being some sort of like maybe a, a cultural explanation? I don't think it's mainly economic. So as you know, Japan has built plenty, and their TFR is about 1.3. South Korea has built plenty. It's not as cheap to live there as in Japan, but their TFR is 0.8. Countries that have tried birth subsidies, which I'm willing to try, uh, but it doesn't seem they've been especially effective, and maybe they're just not big enough yet. But at some margin, the expense really matters too. So I think it's mostly cultural, and uh, the joys of raising children have not gone up as much as the joys of doing other things. Maybe that's the key problem. Wonderful. Well, Tyler, I'm going to have to stop there. It's been such an interesting conversation uh, and a real honor to have you on. Um, so many uh, thought-provoking questions and answers. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Certainly looking forward to your upcoming book on Schools of Economic Thought and Famous Economists. Great to chat with you, and we'll be in touch. Today, our guest was Tyler Cowan, who is a professor of economics at George Mason University and the faculty director of the Mercatus Center, as well as the co-founder of the popular Marginal Revolution blog. This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.